Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by an anon from Twitter, one of my dear friends who goes by Lomez. In our conversation, you will find out why he is dear to me and why I like Twitter anonymous writers, the young men who are intelligent, angry, and passionate about the various American causes that the podcast has long treated through cinema over, I guess, 200 episodes now. But today we will be doing in our critic series a discussion of Fight Club, the 1999 movie that we have somehow never covered on the podcast. And young men, angry young men, have recently been on my mind, have been a topic in conversation online and discussions with my editors and the various organizations I work with as, how does one put it, figuring out what the problem and what the solutions for conservatism in America are now. And because I've been thinking about these problems, I have been thinking about Fight Club. And thinking about Fight Club, I immediately thought of Lomez. Now, let me turn it to you, my friend. Please introduce yourself, your anonymous fame, which is a strange thing to say about somebody, but you are anonymously (laughs) famous. You are active in making for more anonymous fame. You're making anonymity great. And I applaud you for that. First of all, it's my first chance to say it publicly. And secondly, I'm very grateful to have you on the show, to have you on the podcast, to talk about Fight Club, to talk about angry young men. And of course, the relationship between the movie and the world young men in America live with now on social media. Titus, thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for the invitation to be here. I am very excited for this conversation. Briefly, so yes, I'm in a non-online. Relevant to the conversation we're going to have about Fight Club, I run a publishing company, a new publishing company called Passage Press, Passage Publishing. One of our first big projects is an anthology of works by various Anons and other writers sort of loosely in this online space called the Passage Prize, for which we're giving out $20,000 in prizes for art and writing. Our most recent contest, which we've just completed and are now working on putting the book together, the theme for that contest was rewilding. And the idea behind it was for people in this space to sort of assert a more primitive aspect of their underlying nature. And as I said, this has a lot of relevance to uh, the conversation we're going to be having about Fight Club. So we'll get more into that later. I also recently wrote an article for First Things Magazine, which has gained quite a bit of traction called What is the Longhouse, in which I explicate this concept of the longhouse, which is essentially a kind of matriarchal superstructure that rules modern society. I borrowed that term from Bronze Age perverts. So that's where it originally came from. And I attempted in this article for First Things to further elaborate on the features of the longhouse and how those features can be observed in modern, you know, political, cultural, social life. And again, the reason I I bring up that article in particular is because it has a lot of relevance to this film, which was released in, I think, 99. And the book it's based on was published in 1996 and is distinctly a Gen X film. And maybe that's something we can talk about. Nonetheless, the themes around sort of masculinity and the way that these men feel compelled in this movie to assert a particular kind of sort of 
masculine tendency and like these masculine inner urgings is as relevant today as it was, you know, 25 years ago. So that's where I'm coming from. That's a bit about me. Yeah. Indeed, this is why I thought from the beginning, you are the guy to talk about this movie. I like your criticism of the gunaikocracy, the longhouse, but also the fact that unlike most of us, you're doing a lot more to organize and to help young talent, to cultivate talent, to see if it is the case that young men are unhappy. What do they got? What do they have to offer? What are they going to do? Yeah. And art is part of that, obviously. And it's the part that relates artists, thinkers, and audiences. And since you are at the crux of that as an editor, organizer of this prize, I recommend to everybody to look up Passage Publishing, to look up the Passage Prize, to buy your previous volume and to look forward to the next one. This is the second edition. And another thing, congratulations for it. Everything that gets to a second edition is already (laughs) a small victory. Looking forward, of course, to the third, fourth, fifth, and so on. I hope people will admire you enough to imitate you. As people say, it's the sincerest form of flattery, imitation. So, yeah, uh, sorry to, to, to jump in here, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but there is a sense in which this kind of underlying displeasure, dissatisfaction, perhaps even anger that many young people are feeling, this can express itself in a variety of different ways. Like the pressure valve can be released in essentially two different directions. And one thing we're going to talk about with the film is how it can be released in a destructive way. It's instantiated through destruction and, and tearing down. There's another option though, which is through creativity and creation. One thing I'm very mindful of in these projects I'm undertaking is that this is a very powerful sort of energy source that we're attempting to draw from through passage. And if it's misdirected and misfocused, it can lead to very bad results, misanthropic, antisocial sorts of results. And it can tilt that way very quickly. And it's in some sense a very sort of appealing path for this kind of energy to take. In fact, it may be the path of least resistance. So it's where the energy wants to go. And so I think it's important for those of us who are tapping into this energy source that we're mindful of the possibility of this energy getting misdirected and attempt to push it in more positive directions and lead these young men mostly toward a place that sort of delivers them from the grip of potential self-destruction and towards something more productive. That's something that I think about a lot that I'm very mindful of. And that again is really, I think in this film, as I was watching it, I hadn't seen this movie for probably 20 years, is really the tension point in the movie. It's not a question of whether or not these young men are sort of angry or looking for an escape hatch somewhere to express their like primitive and sort of barbaric instinct. The tension point is how does that get expressed? And so in the movie, we see this escalate towards something maybe less productive toward the end. And so, yeah, again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but that's something we'll certainly be talking about here. Yeah, to bring up the questions of manliness is to be playing with fire. We live in a world regulated by HR and essentially OSHA. It's safety and health everywhere you turn. Uh And uh, of course, the alternative to that would be to disregard safety and health and to be daring, 
face danger. As mm-hmm. Hemingway immortally put it, grace under pressure. That's what manliness means. But as you aptly put it, once the pressure builds, people might be less than graceful and less than gracious about it. It's a very dangerous thing to do. In a way, we could say in our defense that we're only doing it because it's the only thing that can be done now. Yeah. That's the strange situation we are in, that daring is absolutely required. It is not optional. The fact that it's very rare does not disprove the point. In a way, it proves the point, since the people who are for it and the people who are against it are generally agreed. These are pretty crazy times. The regime of safety and health is not something people are happy with. And this creates an opportunity for an alternative, but it also creates, of course, the danger that the only alternative is pure barbarism. That threat which underlies the Bronze Age perverts, Bronze Age mindset, I think is very Uh real. And it's supposed to remind people of the reality that is the fact that all civilizations collapse. If you start to feel the fear, you start to wonder where does it all tend and it must tend to collapse. How do you avoid that? How do you get new energy? How do you get people to stand up for the things they should stand up for rather than burn things down as they are inclined to, looking for revenge as they are? These are very difficult questions, but these are the questions worth asking. Indeed, no other questions are particularly urgent. (laughs) And in that sense, Fight Club has this odd distinction. 1999 was a crazy year, both for movies and for the world. It was, say, the year of the battle in Seattle. The crazy people against the World Trade Organization meeting, and of course, against the world order, against globalized capitalism. But most of those crazy young men were on the left, and the crazy young men today are on the right, but they are Mm -hmm. also against globalization. So in a certain sense, we have globalized, or at least generalized among young men, an anti-globalization sentiment. And of course, that's primarily anger against the elites that have promoted and are promoting this. That, however, is not a productive project. It's not even yet analytically sound. Why are we so angry? Why are we saying crisis all the time? And of course, you can look at it not from our anon point of view, let's call it, but from the elite point of view. People in the elite have been psychopathic since Trump got elected, and they are not hiding it. People have come in our times to brag about their mental illness as a justification for their politics. That people are, have been driven crazy by Trump is a thing of pride, or at any rate, it's a justification. So it has generalized this anger, this dissatisfaction that was once the province of a few weirdos or the story that uh, select artists would tell who could smell it in the air, who would somehow figure out way ahead of the curve what was coming. That, I think, is one of the least recognized functions of our better artists. They can tell what's going to become a real problem 10 or 20 years on down Mm -hmm. the line. And they make stories that people call controversial or shocking or imaginative, when what they should be asking themselves is, what is it about us today that might make somebody think this way? Yeah. And at least in retrospect, we should indeed, as you say, make the effort to connect this kind of work of art fight club with the drama we are now living day by day. At the time, you could say we didn't take it seriously because we didn't think anything bad was going to happen. It was the 90s. It was nice. But nowadays, we don't take it seriously because we feel too pushed, too pressed by urgency, by events. We don't know what's going to happen next. There's always some new scandal to worry about. 
And so you can't have perspective either way. At the time when we had the distance for perspective, we didn't think there was anything to be worried about. Today, when we're worried about mostly everything, we do not have the distance required. So maybe in this retrospective way, looking back at the movie, we can see what the matter is with us and what it Mm -hmm. is that we might do about it. So very briefly, I think everybody knows Fight Club. It was a big hit. It signaled director David Fincher as an artist. It made Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, who was already a star, it made them iconic for those roles. And of course, it has since become memes. The announcer of disaster, Zero Hedge, the famous blog and Twitter account, one of the guys there goes by Tyler Durden. Everybody gets it. You could say that before Christopher Nolan's Joker, it was Tyler Durden that spoke the terrifying mm. truths of American life to an enchanted but somehow unbelieving audience. The story, very briefly, is just that a young man stuck in a corporation world played by Edward Norton goes crazy and starts a fight club, which is exactly what it sounds like. And it turns into a terrorist cult of destroying the institutions of global financial capitalism. It's a happy end, by the way. (laughs) And in parallel, as a whole, it's a comedy about the same guy, not going uh, exactly down the destructive path, but finding a weird girl and falling in love with her. And it's almost a romantic comedy. But obviously, this was 90s, so there was a lot of crazy stuff. The romantic comedy part, I think we're going to skip for our conversation. It's what recommended the movie to me now, as I said, was exactly what's happening to... Edward Norton, who turns into Brad Pitt. This is exactly what's been happening online for years now. People who in reality are decent guys on Twitter become fire-breathing monsters. And in some strange way, there must be an identity there. It must be the case that the ordinary young American man who is middle class and lives the middle class life is also secretly ready to commit catastrophe. And I think this has always been a problem in American life. It's something like the World War II veterans who came home and never talked about what they did and what they suffered. Because obviously the people back home would never understand. They hadn't been through it. But also probably for other reasons. It's why people love war. It's why after 9-11, all of these young American men signed up. And again and again and again in many cases. There is a lot to love about war. It's great, actually. One reason the war on terror happened the way it did is because they didn't really run out of men to fight it. Because young American men were looking for a fight. And at some level, that also meant what you see in a very ugly but very persuasive way in Fight Club. That maybe it's not worth living the American life and risking death in a dangerous, terrible way is better. It may be a shocking thing to say in America, but trust me, you can't keep getting men to sign up for war who don't think that the ordinary American life is not that impressive. The people who make America's warring classes are not incredibly poor. They're not poor by third world standards or by American standards. They don't do it for the money. They do it because they love the war. And the truth is, war is lovable. And that's almost impossible to face in American society. Nobody will ever say it in public, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why people keep signing up. And outside the fight club, it's impossible to find any movie about domestic life 
where that truth shows up. The fact that young men are looking for fight, they are looking for loyalty, they are looking to test themselves, they are looking to get in danger, that is to say to oppose at some level everything that the ordinary decent middle-class man stands for, who will rather suffer some trouble than get in trouble himself, who is ashamed of ever being stopped by the, the, the police and who is horrified by the thought of having a record. The lawfulness of American citizens is hard to exaggerate, but that also creates, especially in young men, of course, a certain desire for lawlessness. And in foreign affairs, it shows up as war, but in domestic affairs, what do those people do who think maybe it's better to be dead than to live the American life? They die deaths of despair, as we often say, or also, as Steve Saylor says, they die deaths of exuberance. (laughs) drugs, alcohol, car crashes, shootouts, people. You know, there's always a problem in a peaceful society. What do you do with the people who ain't that peaceful, i.e. young men primarily? Now, obviously, the whole murder, crime, and death by driving problem is primarily a black people problem in America, but it's still an American problem. And terrifyingly, more and more white people have been dying deaths of despair or exuberance also. This is a national pathology at this point. And since nobody paid attention to David Fincher's Fight Club, nobody was ready. I suppose there were other ways of learning that this was happening, but people didn't learn from those other sources either. And at any rate, Fight Club is a lot more fun and a lot more persuasive. And I think it's not just that it shows what's going to happen in America, what these terrible troubles of young men will be, what happens with men who don't necessarily want peace or who will only take peace if it's somehow honorable and otherwise will do deeply dishonorable things even. It's also the analysis. It's the relationship between Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, between the nice guy who lives the life where you work for a corporation and you buy things from Ikea for an apartment, hoping to attract a woman to nest with. And on the other hand, the terrible, monstrous, violent, dangerous, crazy guy that people secretly admire. The wish for a kind of tyrannic power not to give a damn about the consequences. I think that analysis is very strong and it's somehow at the core of becoming a man, facing those fears and those desires and those dangers. Yes, there's a lot to get to there. And there's this question of, okay, then and now. So there's a question of how this all bears on our present. But let me start by responding to the then. Okay, what was going on in 1999 and why might this film have been a sort of perfect encapsulation of that time or fit within sort of what else was going on culturally then. Another movie that came out in 1999, about six months before Fight Club, is The Matrix. And in The Matrix, you have an almost identical setup, which is this guy living this kind of very drab, boring office life. He lives in this shitty apartment. He's alone. He doesn't have a girlfriend. We don't know anything about his past or where he came from. He's a kind of cipher that just sort of exists, decontextualized in this like world in which nothing is happening. And it's no coincidence that this is a period of time, you know, that Francis Fukuyama calls the end of history. There's nothing happening. It's it's this totally decontextualized time. And there's this sense where young men, whether it's the Keanu Reeves character in Matrix or Edward Norton's character, these like desk jockeys for these faceless global corporations, their jobs are some combination of 
totally like irrelevant and unsatisfying, like spiritually or creatively or downright evil. In the case of Edward Norton's job, he's some kind of like actuarial for a car company. You know, they determine when they do recalls, assuming like a certain amount of people die for some defect in a car that his car company makes. Okay, so how we first see them is these men who are depressed in some sense, searching for meaning. It's not just that they're decontextualized from history and like a life, like they don't have girlfriends, like I said, or, or any family or anything. They have no religion either. There's no sense of spirituality in this place. They're totally devoid of anything beyond their immediate material circumstances. And so in Fight Club, this is expressed through Edward Norton's obsession with stuff. He just surrounds himself with like furniture and these are the only things he cares about because he has to find meaning somewhere. And so he just starts collecting like furniture and there's obsession with stuff. Okay. These material things that you surround yourself with in the absence of anything more deeply spiritual. And what both of these movies then move to or sort of latch onto thematically is this idea, this sort of sense, this creeping suspicion that there must be something else beyond my immediate circumstances that I can leave this world and go to this other sort of plane of existence almost. I mean, in, in the case of the matrix, that's literally is what happens in the case of fight club. It's more psychological, but it's leaving the body and place that these characters start in and then entering into some new world, which is like beyond the veil of reality. They've sort of, arrived at the thing beyond things, okay? And so what we see then is all of this meaning and action and excitement comes once they leave their material circumstances. And so, you know, it's no coincidence that in 1999, aside from all this end of history talk, there are no wars at this time, no active military engagements, maybe like this or that small thing here and there. But, you know, pre-9-11, Everything is sort of calm. Everybody's sort of waiting for the next shoe to drop. And these men, in the absence of the potential to fight in a war, are searching for something, some way to express this like inner urging to escape these spiritually vacant material conditions that they're in. So that's true in 1999. And that explains why in 1999 this movie might have been so relevant. The question I would ask, though, is now why in 2020s, okay, whatever, you know, the current year, the era we're in, why have these themes reemerged? We've had like an ongoing two-decade war with Afghanistan. There's been opportunity to go fight in active conflicts for the majority of people like my age. Okay, not to dox, but I'm sure, you know, you can do the math and figure it out. People my age have had opportunities to fight in wars. People who sort of make up the majority of like online and nons have had the opportunity to go fight in wars. Mostly they've chosen not to, despite what your impression is of Americans as being sort of tempted towards these deaths of exuberance and even uh, deaths of despair. That's mostly a lower class phenomenon. The men who we're talking about, like who would be the equivalent of the 
Edward Norton character is like a college educated guy who has never had to get in a fight in his life. He probably never had any interest or need to even think about joining the military. His closest contact with violence might be like a freshman football practice that he intended, you know, before quitting at some point. And so these men in their regular lives are quite docile. They're very conformist in most ways. On the occasions that I've gone out and like met Anons in real life, they're like dressed nice. They have like good jobs. They're competent at their jobs. They are often, they're like married. They have kids. They have stable family relationships. And yet this isn't enough. There's still this thing that's missing from this life that they are seeking out. And this like normie world, let's call it, this sort of default world is still vacant. It's still devoid of opportunities for meaning. And so the same thing that's happening like in 1999 with Fight Club and The Matrix, where we see these sort of ordinary average Joe guys seeking out these opportunities for sort of meaning, excitement, danger, risk, as you say, that's still true now, despite these other historical circumstances changing. And so, you know, I don't quite know what the answer is there. What it may mean is that there's some like permanent need for this that this is just a condition of modernity, generally speaking, that in any society we were to build out from here, if we were adequately provided for, we had relatively easy pathways towards like fulfilling our basic needs, making sure we, you know, we had enough food, we had a place to sleep, you know, society more or less worked functionally. We didn't have to worry about like roving bands of miscreants, like trying to steal our stuff or whatever, that we would necessarily face this kind of dissatisfaction or this, this need for like acting out this sort of primitive aspects of our character, these primitive aspects of our nature. And so I'm hesitant because our conditions are different than they were in 99 and still we're feeling a lot of these same things or these things are still relevant. I'm wondering if this is just a baseline condition of modernity that's sort of inescapable. Yeah, I think there must be something to that. Just think about what you were saying. One thing in common between The Matrix and Fight Club is that the protagonists are engaged in the business of rationalizing life. Ah. Right? They are computer scientists of some kind. They are statisticians. They are the people who make sure that the future is boring, that there's nothing to be afraid of, that you're covered. Things like that. Modernity is rationalization. And this has long been a problem. So maybe the first perfect noir is Double Indemnity, the Billy Wilder movie. The protagonist in that story, Fred McMurray, is also working in insurance. Yeah. What does insurance do? It insures you against the risk. It rationalizes the future. It's as American as you can want it. That is, it's a, a sure win. And it's all about the future. But a future in which everybody wins is boring and people begin to realize, but especially young men feel it strongly, that that's fake. Yeah. It's no longer a future fit for human beings. Yeah. And I wonder if... out what makes them yearn. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking about this, the film mostly. I actually picked up the book and I read through the book over the last week. And uh, it's more or less faithful to the film or the film's more or less faithful to the book, but... In the film, there's a lot more emphasis in this final stage of the movie where 
they are attempting to blow up all these like credit card company buildings. Okay. And the stated reason for that is like, I mean, it's easy to graft on like this kind of like lefty Marxist socialist kind of reading of this and why they're targeting credit card companies specifically. And in fact, getting back to what the context was, you know, in 1999 with the WTO and the Black Bloc riots in Seattle. And in fact, there's a clip in the movie. There's one scene where this terrorist cell that sort of grows out of the fight club, they destroy this like Starbucks, okay, or this like Starbucks-esque sort of coffee shop, which has perfect synchronicity with what was going on with the WTO. And so People who have, like academics who have written about this movie make this kind of leftist read of things. But actually, if you read the book, in the book, that's less clear. What what they're actually attempting to do is a kind of Ted Kaczynski-esque or like John Zerzan, who's this like, sort of eco-anarchist. They just want to destroy modernity. It's not about destroying capitalism. Like capitalism's irrelevant to the worldview of the characters of the book, what they're actually trying to do is return us to some kind of like primitive space. Like they're fantasizing about the jungle, like retaking the cities, like giant wild megafauna, you know, invading the cities. And there's this great scene in which they describe the people sort of uh, hiding away in zoos at night while the wild animals like attempt to get them in their cages, you know? And so I, I just think it's a really lazy kind of ideological reading to say that this is about capitalism. And, and so getting back to the point I was making that this isn't really, so long as the substrate of society is a technological modern one in which this kind of like rationalizing labor is like sort of the primary work that you do, both as like a way to make money, but also just in your sort of spiritual or cultural life, that you're going to be faced with precisely this kind of engulfing alienation. And the only retreat from that, the only way out of that is total destruction, is Kaczynski-esque or, or John Zerzan-esque, like nuke the cities. And okay, so <laughs> then I guess we're faced with this problem, which is, is that any kind of solution? Would that be like a positive development? Do we want that? And if the answer is no, all right, I have a family and kids. I'm on the, maybe 15 years ago, I might've been more sympathetic to that view. Let's return, not return to the, you know, 17th century or something. Like let's return to like, you know, fifth century BC, like, or even before that, like real primitive stuff. I don't think that's necessarily a solution. So then the question is, what do we do? How do we exercise or express these underlying urges towards a kind of primitivism or barbarianism that doesn't require us to sort of blow the whole thing up? I mean, that's an open question. I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially with the movie, it's obvious that the intention is not to burn down capitalism. The intention is not to put an end to civilization, but to show what the predicament of civilization is, since it somehow depends on men but it mutilates the souls of young men. Mm -hmm. It leads them into careerist conformism, and that leads to this consequence that we now see everywhere over the internet, the de-doubling, the fact that I'm one guy in real life, as you were saying, and another one online. And of course, this is treated as though we somehow have to repress the internet to make sure that this doesn't show up, but it would show up 
the internet only made it possible for people to realize how many other people feel this way, but it didn't make them feel that way in the first place. As you say, this has something to do with a much more basic thing with the modern bargain with strike that allows us for the sake of some work to get the chance to live a private life. But it turns out that that private life somehow is not enough, especially for men. It leads to the desire for either adventure or revolution or all sorts of weird luxuries to show off, to peacock, to strut, but also to a generalized understanding that there is something fake about our society, that some some of the things we say, we don't really believe in because we don't act on it. And we don't act on our principles because it would disturb the public order and it would shake our certainty in our bank accounts. And the need to structure that as some kind of conflict, storytelling is all about conflict after all, to some extent illuminates, but to some extent obscures what we are going. As you say, this is a modern problem. We've always had it and we might have it with us, so to speak, so long as we are what we are. It's it's not merely the stuff we don't like about ourselves, it's the stuff that we like about ourselves that, yeah. that leads to this, a great insistence on privacy. To some extent, to be private is to be myself. And to be myself, I have to be not like other people. And if you think about what that means, you'll soon see that it means destroying other things. Yeah. I wonder, though, if now setting up that maybe this is just a inescapable problem of modernity. My counter argument to that, like I'm, I'm arguing with myself here, is that no, actually, this th- there's something particular about the way the West in particular, America in particular, is currently structured that if it doesn't create this problem, it exacerbates it, it makes it much worse and, and ultimately intolerable. And that's this question of like the sort of feminization of our culture, the sort of longhouse that we're living in. And in the book, this is super apparent. They mention it in the movie. Both characters mention that they are sort of fatherless in certain ways. Like Ed Norton's character mentions that his father left when he was six and didn't stick around. And there's a lot of discussion of fathers and the absence of fathers and the absence of men. And at one point, it's like explicit in the book. There's this one line paragraph What you see at Fight Club is a generation of men raised by women. And it really is, in the book, this problem that gives rise to this impulse to act out for these men. And I think it's more complex than simply that these men are surrounded by women or there's this kind of like HRization of their world. It is that. But there's also the absence of these sort of masculine tendencies or opportunities, which includes, it's not just violence for violence sake, but exploration. I mean, these are men without a frontier. It's a society without a frontier. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go take a risk to conquer somewhere or tame some kind of frontier. Everything is internalized. There's no external way to exercise these impulses. And for a certain kind of man, for a certain kind of person, this is intolerable. And what this feminized world insists upon, not only do these opportunities, are, are not only are they closed off just by virtue of the constraints of living on the earth, which has since been sort of discovered and conquered, but they're further closed off by this insistence that wanting those things, even desiring that sense of exploration and to conquer is somehow bad, is illicit. 
and that they ought not be that way. And that men ought to sublimate those desires in favor of some other more docile way of being. And so with that pressing sort of constantly on the lives and sort of attitudes of these men, it creates these intolerable circumstances that need to find an outlet somewhere. And so what this causes is two things. First is a kind of dissociation. And that's where the sort of anonymity or, or pseudonymous sort of being comes into play. In Fight Club, we see this explicitly, like he becomes Tyler Durden, this alter ego that expresses all the things that he can't express. You know, in The Matrix, he becomes Neo. He becomes this other guy who's capable in these ways that his previous self was incapable. We see this in our world, obviously, and this is where it might tie into our like anonymous world, people taking on these alter egos. And at least in this sort of digital realm, expressing a kind of attitude that they're incapable of expressing elsewhere. But the thing is, if you really think about it, I mean, the sued world, the Anon world is pretty weak tea. I mean, it's still operating purely in the world of symbols. That's ultimately not enough. I mean, people are going to look for other ways of expressing these urges yeah, I think that's right, that a non-step somehow has to do, as you see, these movies, Fight Club especially, with the need to, on the one hand, transgress what you have been brought up with because it's killing you, but on the other hand, yeah. find other like-minded people who can also bear the pressure of being outcasts. Yeah. But that's, at best, a preliminary step. It's dramatically interesting, it's psychologically interesting, why would people who have so much safety long for danger? How can people be yeah. unhappy in the midst of prosperity, as Tuville observed about Americans, restlessness? Yeah, well, it's because this comes up in the book, too, in a film. In order to live a fulfilling life, you need to test yourselves. You need to press your limits. You need to know what it is you're capable of, lest you die wondering, you know, what did I miss out on? You know, we're all searching in our own ways for these limit experiences. Your whole life, I mean, for most of us, ought not be limit experiences. That's what makes them limit experiences, that there are these things that just, they happen once. I, I can't remember if this is in the film or the book. I think maybe both. But, you know, at some point, as a main motif, this is by sort of experiencing pain. This is done by experiencing pain and the character, the Tyler Durden character sort of pours lie onto the back of the hands of the various people who join the fight club. And there's this line that in the throes of like the deepest pain the guy has felt ever. Okay. I mean, he's at the point of passing out. He's told that this is the first time he's telling himself, but this is the first time he's ever been alive. He's alive for the first time through that limit experience of pain. And so the question for any sort of modern person is, not any, but many of us is, where can I find these limit experiences? Well, one answer is like through drugs. So like a lot of people go do DMT, you know, this is like a thing. There's the, these like sort of psychonauts, you know, Joe Rogan talks about this all the time. And this has become a, you know, people like go do these like crazy drug trips. And again, yeah, this it's like this dissociation, you're entering into this other kind of way of seeing the world. So there's a lot of overlap there, but it's ultimately false, right? It's an illusion. 
It's not the real thing. And this is true of being online too. There's some sense in which you're courting danger and you're allowing yourself to express these things that you wouldn't otherwise express. And there's some freedom in that for sure. And there's some positive value in that. But I mean, from someone who's been in this world, you know, online and been anonymous for a while and used that as a vehicle to sort of express things that I can't elsewhere, it's still ultimately, at least in some sense, illusory. It's, it's not actual experience. As I was saying, you're still purely in the world of symbols. And so the question is, where do we go to discover these limit experiences that aren't illusory or purely symbolic? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think that if you compare Fight Club with the world we live in now, it's not just that everybody seems to want to de-double like Edward Norton does. Yeah. And that's also, you know, sort of prophetic about the movie that the guy who thinks he's Tyler Durden, he's not Brad Pitt, he's Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. But other things, the Fight Club, think about the rise of, since you mentioned Joe Rogan, UFC, mixed martial arts, yeah. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Correct. How many people go and learn to roll? Yeah. Uh, gives people a respect Which is great. skill. And yeah. it also gives them a much healthier attitude to fear. And yeah, yeah. Uh, you'd think that uh, everybody, you know, all the kids in secondary school, all the boys should be taught. We're not yeah. there yet, but I think it's spreading in a way that would have been inconceivable in the 90s. But there are other yeah. aspects I- of the Fight Club too. Think about what you're saying, Edward Norton and his stupid furniture. Think about how many people do woodwork on the other hand. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Much more than there ever were, and uh, or, or people who buy bespoke knives uh-huh. because they want a good knife. There have been attempts to turn property, not in exactly into an experience, but into, as you might say, something more meaningful. You know the good that something does, and you know something about the craft put into it so you can respect the maker as well. Yeah, All of these are attempts to fight against this notion that your life will be lived for you in the sense that everything that you use has been made for you by obviously impersonal industrial scientific corporations, your furniture, your all your experiences are provided for you. Yeah. So there's nothing left that is personal. And indeed, people look for the personal in everything that from property to how they deal with their bodies, think about how all left-wing worries, not about globalization, but about what you put in your body and how you eat, are now right-wing worries. And we are the new hippies, right? We are the new people obsessed with the dangers of artificiality and of science taking over our very bodies. Surely that's a self-defensive reaction. And it's at the same time an attempt to make sure that knowledge is not turned against us, that rationalism isn't going to kill us or poison us. Yeah, It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, one thing that jumped out at me watching the movie was not only are there these like clear parallels with the anonymity and suits and everything, but the anonymous character of Tyler Durden, he has this expansive like bro knowledge, what you know, we call like right wing bodybuilder knowledge in the way that he knows how to like use all these various chemicals and make his soaps and he has this kind of esoteric knowledge that's not available to everyone else. And that is definitely one of the appeals of this Anon world is having access to people who have this like specialized, almost sort of boutique knowledge about how things actually work, especially as it pertains to, like you said, like diet, food, how we take care of our bodies. 
you know, I think that is one way in which the Anon world sort of leaks out of the symbolic into the sort of material, corporeal sort of world, which is how obsessed people are with bodies and being sort of physical beings in the world. And so there's this sort of obsession with bodybuilding. What's interesting is with the bodybuilding, mostly it's not aesthetic. You know, Bath has like handsome Thursdays, but that's a separate thing. Like the majority of bodybuilding discourse that you see on the right and in a non-spaces is about functional strength. It's not bodybuilding in the sense of looking perfectly chiseled or re- maximally reducing body fat. I mean, that may be sort of a part of it, but it, it's mostly functional strength and functional towards what end? Again, like I think there's some open question there, like towards what end is something we're all searching for. But yeah, the MMA craze is definitely relevant to this discussion. I think ultimately violence and the possibility of death and serious irreversible physical harm has to be a part of the experience that a man ultimately like encounters at some point in his life. You have to be faced with the possibility of like severe physical harm in order to really learn something about yourself. In America, this happens a lot through football. High school football is a major part of that experience. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the last 10 years, there's been this huge critique of high school football because of the concussion issue. And like many people are not letting their kids play football. Um, I think that's a huge mistake. It's totally overblown, especially at the high school level. Those kids just aren't fast and big enough for the concussion question to really enter into it. And so in the absence of a military proxy, which is like football, which is youth football, what then can like American boys turn to? Maybe it's MMA. Maybe that's a good thing. But yeah, there has to be something. There has to be some end toward which we're constructing our bodies or preparing ourselves for some kind of experience or altercation. And so, yeah, that's something I think we're all searching for. Yeah, I think it's underrated the extent to which hitting the gym is a liberation from the desk-bound life, from the desk-bound job. And Mm -hmm. I think the fact that this hasn't moved on to going out in the mountains, forests, or on rivers is a bit of a surprise to me. Probably there's a great business idea in there for people who do business. But becoming acquainted with and, in a way, friends with yourself in the way in which gym or MMA training does that somehow must connect to, on the one hand, becoming acquainted with the world. Think about American obsession with the Southwest Desert, with the national parks, with the Pacific Ocean, these sublime experiences of a universe that is beautiful but deadly. It does not care about you and you have to watch out for yourself. That should be promoted a lot more. But on the other hand, as you were saying, the current tendency is still to emasculate boys to make sure that nobody ever gets hit by anybody else in yeah, football. And <laughs> you know, when people fight that, is there any way out? 
And yeah. you can see that it will, I, I would say that just like the gym is a part of this sort of liberation from the desk-bound job, violence and the fantasy uh -huh. is a liberation from the safety and health rhetoric, which is not just a rhetoric, it really seeps in people's bones. It's like the you were mentioning this, the fatherlessness in Fight Club, right? In the movie, at least, I haven't, unlike you, I've not read the book, I did not do the work, uh, <laughs> I just watched the movie. And in the movie, there's this scene where Tyler Durden talks to himself, or Edward Norton rather, talks to himself, who would you fight? And says, I want to fight Gandhi. I want to fight Lincoln. These yes. images of moralistic sacrifice that somehow make young men ask, okay, this guy died for my sins. He's the multicolored Jesus in the case of Gandhi. He's the yeah. third world symbol. Uh, but for what? For what? He died for my sins and I'm supposed to live with this miserable life. It's mm -hmm. more like damnation to hell than being delivered. And then he says, you know, I want to fight my father. Yeah. The other thing you were saying, right? They look at the Calvin Klein ad and they say, is that what a man looks like? Is that really a man? These people who are chiseled, but who are essentially worthless. They have no manly daring, no manly danger. Instead, they show themselves off. In short, they're women, but with a lot of muscle. So indeed, functional strength seems to be an alternative even to that. Facing the pain is an alternative to trying to look pretty and be applauded for it. It's an inner experience. Despite what Mr. Clinton and all the progressives are saying, nobody can feel your pain. Right. One reason <clears throat> men are attracted to pain is the certainty that nobody else can feel it. It's personal. And, yeah, uh, and, and so there's somehow an attempt there to remind yourself or to become aware of who you really are. It's undeniable in a way that other psychological experiences are, you can sort of fool yourself into happiness or like rationalize your way into being sort of content. There's all sorts of ways that you can induce a kind of like false euphoria, you know, through drugs and whatever else. Pain has this clarifying effect that other emotions and experiences don't have. I mean, it's sort of the ultimate way of bringing yourself into a moment, everything else disappears into the shadow of your experience of pain. And so there's a certain like immediacy to it as well. Yeah. One thing I was going to bring up, you know, you mentioned the outdoors and this kind of using like the wilderness of which America, you know, in North America, Canada too, you know, there's still plenty of wilderness to go explore and I have an abundance of that around where I am, certainly. Okay, but even that is being corrupted in certain ways. And there's still, obviously, like, to go hunting for, like, an elk or something, or go bow hunting for, like, a mountain lion. Okay, there, there are ways of doing this that are still sort of pure-ish. But one thing you notice if you, like, drive through big national parks in the U.S., Yellowstone included, you know, Yellowstone's famously, there's grizzly bears and wolves and bison and all this stuff. But there's a kind of like Disneyification of these places. There are certainly ways to escape from it, but you just drive into these places and they're full of tour buses with hundreds of Chinese tourists. And there's just this mass of people that you have to encounter to experience these places kind of undermines their purpose a little bit. And then, you know, even maybe more poignant than that is, I don't think this exists elsewhere, but in America, sort of for the, you know, large part of the second half of the 20th century anyway, the organization that was sort of responsible for introducing boys and men to the wilderness is the Boy Scouts. 
And I don't know how familiar you are about what's happened to the Boy Scouts, but it's been literally like feminized, gayified. Okay. Like women now are, you know, allowed to be a part of it and they can run these troops. And there was this huge lawsuit and now like gay kids or whatever, like there's this whole stage of Boy Scouts where you have to do like a diversity and inclusion thing to get your Eagle Scout. So even these institutions that have historically been the sort of exclusive realm of boys and men and their introduction to these experiences have been corrupted and sort of poisoned by this broader feminization. It's hard to find places where you can escape it again like maybe that's the appeal of the underground basement where it's just a bunch of anonymous dudes essentially beating the shit out of each other i mean as ridiculous as that sounds there's something sort of pure about it primal about it that you can't find anywhere else so it's easy to see why the ideas here are still attractive Look, now in America, you have celebrity Navy SEALs who do corporate consulting and right. team building in corporations, you know? And then yeah. if you ask them, they will tell you that uh, they are big believers in raising their daughters just like their sons. Right, right. It's a crazy world. Yeah. It's a world where the NFL does the cancer awareness, but it's always women cancer and they rule yeah. in pink. Yeah. Well, this, so, okay, it's funny. This is it. I, I, and, yeah. Again, I, I'm trying to remember if this is in the book or the movie. It's certainly in the book. This character attends all the support group meetings. And the primary one he goes to is the testicular cancer. Okay. And this theme of testicular cancer and castration sort of reappears throughout the book and in the movie too, I think. I think at one point in the movie towards the end, when he's trying to sort of intervene on his own plan to blow up this building, some of the other members of Project Mayhem attempt to like cut his balls off, that that's like what they have to do in order to stop him. And so this fear of castration, literally this testicular cancer, your sort of manhood being eaten away by this sort of metastasizing force is like the sort of perfect symbol for what's going on in this book and what's motivating these men to sort of desperately act out to forego this inevitable sort of castration that they're facing. Obviously, this stuff is very intentional. And the author and the filmmakers understood exactly what was being expressed here and the sort of crisis of manhood that was being expressed in this book. Yeah, it's another way in which Fight Club was ahead of its time and it looks much clearer now when we see it all around us, the reduction of friendship, morality, solidarity Mm -hmm. to therapy, group Mm -hmm. therapy, public Mm -hmm. group therapy, endlessly temptable. And yeah, uh, yeah, as the Edward Norton guy, the protagonist, he goes to all of these miserable therapy groups and it's because he wants to wallow in the pity. To cry. Yeah. Right. And and those are your options. You become harsher or you wallow in pity. And the harshness is preferable. It's dangerous, obviously, but it's much more. Well, certainly preferable. I mean, what we're made to understand is that at least it's living, you know, it's it's human life. The, The alternative is not life. It's death. It's the embrace of death. And so that's, it's not quite an irony, but there's a central conceit in the film and in the movie, which is in order to live, you have to cease being afraid of death. You, you have to sort of uh, escape this like insistence that dying is somehow bad or something to be avoided. 
rather that it's inevitable, it's natural. Whereas the therapy session is all about like sort of avoiding the inevitability of death or coping with it. I mean, it's redirecting the fear of death into sadness rather than into some sort of positive, well, could be destructive, but anyway, some sort of active way of living. So let me give you an example. Americans love prank shows. The internet, YouTube is full of people pulling pranks on people. And when you pull pranks on people, nine times out of 10, you're going to get somebody who's scared and they start laughing and they're embarrassed of themselves, but they realize they've been had. But one time in 10, the guy who is uh, being pranked doesn't realize it's supposed to be funny and just punches somebody. Yeah. Much better. (laughs) So the whole point of Fight Club is, look, uh, men are going to push in this other direction. What do you do when you're afraid of things? You stand up for yourself is what you do. Yeah. And somehow art also has to help people stand up for themselves. And of course, the symbols are not the same thing as deeds, but they are a necessary step that is now impossible to find anywhere else, which is an education. There's a lot of learning about what it means to be a man and how to deal with the world. And that, of course, has to do with the fact that the very political, very manly passion, anger, is tied up with speeches. Many passions Mm -hmm. aren't, but you find somebody who gets angry and they'll tell you why. You don't have to ask. They'll say why they're angry and why it's a big deal and why you should pay attention and why it's actually a public issue and we should band together to fix something. That is the anger at injustice that leads people to band together, to act in common for a common purpose. It's a way of getting a beyond personal weakness and indeed beyond the limits of personal strength. It's not just that there's strength in numbers, there is strength in causes, there is strength in principles, there is strength in friendships and conspiracies, which is what Fight Club is all about. So then let me ask, I kind of struggled with this. I wasn't sure quite what to make of it, which is the ending. So at the end of this film, in order to kill off this Tyler Durden character, this alter ego who has sort of gone berserk and taken this too far in the direction of this sort of misanthropic, purely destructive force. He shoots himself and I guess he glances his cheek or something and it it doesn't kill him, but it kills this alter ego. And then the woman comes in and there's this kind of like sappy embrace. And then this great pixie song, you know, where's my mind, (laughs) you know, it's like quintessential Gen X stuff. It's such a great song choice for this movie. I had totally forgotten that it was in this film. And so when that came on, I was like, oh yes, this is perfect. I'm not a Gen Xer, but I have older brothers who are. And so that was like a perfect ending from a sort of aesthetic standpoint. But what are we supposed to take away from this ending? Yeah, it's where is my like triumph cool four chords with the it's E major, then he moves into yeah, yeah. C sharp minor, G sharp major, weirdly enough, and then A major. Yeah, cool song. So uh, I think that is supposed to be somehow about maturity, about this okay. guy finally being able to deal with a woman as a man. It's a sign uh-huh. of having grown up. It's somehow of the essence of the movie that the woman did not help him grow up at all. <laughs> Yeah. This is something that men have to do among themselves and to an extent yes. themselves. And that's why she only shows up at the end and is irrelevant to the plot. It says, you know, you met me at a very strange period of my life. Yeah. And I think that it's not an excuse. It, it's not exactly pride either. It's supposed to show self-overcoming. Uh-huh. As a man who is finally, he's not ashamed of himself anymore. And that would seem to be this thing you mentioned, that he has to somehow shoot himself in the face, but not kill himself to get rid of the crazy terrorist ideas. 
But um, so, but okay, I, I would argue. So here's why it was sort of a bit confusing to me, which is that this Tyler Durden character, this alter ego, is while it has this sort of like failure mode, which is that it's taken this thing way too far and sort of can't exist in modern society. It does have a positive effect on him. And I would think that in the end, the goal is not to destroy or kill that impulse, that sort of thing inside you, the sort of Tyler Durden inside you, but to somehow absorb it or take it on and in some sense, like marry it to the more sort of responsible or prudent part of yourself. Yeah, that's, I think that's the point. That the shot uh, to the face is a title Tyler Durden gesture. Okay, yeah. It's not that yeah. he got rid of him, it's that he is him. He's absorbed him. He's taken on what he needs to yeah. take on. Right. So and now he's reborn. Movie, he realizes there's this crazy terrorist thing yeah. in the plot and he wants to stop it. Yeah. And it makes it seem like it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. It's yeah. only when he does that that he acts like it's his own problem. Right. And he takes uh, ownership of that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the first time on the movie he's not in denial about the fact that he had this split personality and this sort of dissociative thing. So, okay. So he's taken on this personality, the positive aspects of it, and he's been sort of reborn in some sense. Yeah. So is there, okay, what I was thinking though. we're teaching about what it means to grow up. Yeah, yeah. Well, so no, I'm, what I'm thinking is, is there a lesson here for Anons? Is there some sense in which there's a certain process in which an Anon or someone who's like operating in these sued spaces online and is exercising these inner urgings, that sort of freedom that they can't find elsewhere but that they have to graduate beyond that, that they have to transcend that at some point and like reassert the actual self somehow where like, you know, the only person I can think of who's done this really is Curtis Yarvin. You know, he was like Mencius Moldbug, but then over time he just becomes Curtis Yarvin. He absorbs Moldbug into himself. And I'm wondering is this the natural step for like Anons going forward? Will there be this point of like transcendence where there will be like this wave of Anons who sort of successfully integrate their pseudo self into their actual self? Or are we stuck because of circumstances that prevent us from like saying what we need to stay? Are we stuck in this sort of like split personality condition? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think this is really the difficulty now that we are undergoing a passage and it's not clear which way it turns out. I think your notion with Molbarg Yarvin is really paradigmatic. It may have been easier in his case because it's a kind of Silicon Valley rationalist. Yeah. If he had been talking about the Iliad instead, he might find it very much harder to find yeah, yeah. a place for himself <laughs> in modern American society, right? Right, so right. Uh, it's not going to be as easy in other cases. And not everybody has his talent and his confidence. So there's going yeah. to be a range of outcomes, as people like to say in the scientific vulgata. But it is paradigmatic. I've seen a, a bunch of my Anon friends graduate from shit posters to people who are really being not father figures, but mentors. Yeah, They're not playing father to people, they're playing teacher. And that yeah. I believe they do have in common with Curtis, who seems desperately uh, trying to find people who would want to undergo the education he's offering, rather the endless chattering critical critics who are trying to evaluate the emphasis and the effects of 
Curtis Yarvin on the culture and the culture on Curtis yeah. Yarvin, this endless pose of ironic detachment and evaluation that means nothing really. Why should you be reading that? Well, if it makes sense, you should be following it and trying to make sense of it and do something about it. I think this is what the non-sphere really is about. It's about creating new educators, people whose advice is trusted and who yeah. hold themselves to an increasingly high standard. People who don't and can't blame the editor or blame the institution or hide behind some kind of bureaucratic nonsense where nobody's ever accountable. And people who therefore aren't trying to create careerist conformists, but trying and creating themselves as men of taste to encourage that in others as well, to show yeah, what they prefer right. by way of the beautiful, the pleasant, the noble, and to almost force it on others. But only so long as those other people as uh, free young men see the attraction and choose it for themselves. And I think that is really the purpose, to create these kinds of educators and education for taste, which is not just a taste for danger or for sophistication, say, not just eating trash or behaving like trash or talking like trash, right? It's supposed to be elevated, it's supposed to be increasingly sophisticated, and supposed to somehow yes. bring together friendship and competition. Yes. That creation of a taste is ultimately the creation of a new elite and the creation of a new citizenry. To yes. make it worthwhile to young men and to show them the ways in which they can show and they can recognize in others whether they are considerate and, so to speak, not NPCs, right? Not creatures of a regime or it's increasingly in bad taste. Yeah, that's right. I don't think it's any accident that in the film and in the book, everything that is done by the sort of anonymous people, even if it's in real life, even if it's in a physical space, is done in secret, is done outside the, the sort of watchful eye of the gynocracy or, you know, the police or whatever. They're still operating covertly. And that seems essential as well. And so you can operate in this sort of middle ground between a non and non and non, so long as you're doing so prudently. Yeah, okay. I mean, these questions are relevant to me personally. So it's kind of interesting to hear what other people have to say about this. Yeah, I think secrecy is essential to this, partly because it is as a practical matter question who you can trust. And the yeah. non-bias that says the basic answer is nobody, and then you make exceptions from there. Right. That again shows taste and decision. It's a matter of being free, of being free, not just from normy niceness and norms of public behavior that are increasingly servile, but free in the sense that it allows you to make judgments. The secret about secrecy is that it liberates judgment. You don't have to accept everything that's already made, and in a way you can't anymore. That's uh, maybe the beginning of freedom, making decisions for yourself. And then there's another matter, aside from the practical aspects of secrecy, some things really are secret. Even yeah. if you wanted to, you can't explain to people what it is that binds you to your friends that you knew from when you were a kid and it's been decades. You know, you can't explain that to people even if you wanted to. Right. There are limits on who can know you and what you can know. Secrecy also shows that the natural limits on knowledge. Other people will not experience what you've experienced. Or if they've experienced it, then you will share that and everybody else doesn't. Right. And that's supposed to restore to people not just freedom, but a kind of power. What are you capable of learning and doing and with whom? It's an alternative to the weird world of public internet where people are somehow obsessed with popularity and at the yeah. same time convinced that they are helpless and hopeless. <laughs> They're just one number in a billion people who watch the video by some pop star. That's your contribution. That's the way you've sacrificed your life. It's like the monastery life of the modern world 
you are literally with your life powering up the social media business oligarchs. It's crazy. Go home and pray. At least you're not making money for Zuckerberg, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a win. <laughs> but otherwise, you need some kind of freedom. And secrecy is the beginning of that freedom and the yeah. creation of a space where you can make decisions and, so to speak, follow out the best of what you think rather than simply following out standard operating procedure or yeah. the secret rules for gaining the systems to be successful and therefore a slave to it. So maybe secrecy is better. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think... I think we're coming to the end of our discussion here. This is the sort of discussion since Fight Club ties so much to what we're going through nowadays that could go on for hours and hours and hours. But it's best to stop here, leave our audience to do some of the discussion for themselves, and we'll wrap it up online on Twitter and so forth. And you and me, yeah, we just got to find another one of these thematic movies that somehow brings up our thoughts on our current predicament and do another podcast. I'd love to. This was super fun. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I like it. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get you on the podcast sooner, but I will remember no, it's it all good, man. now. And as I said, our audience, go look for Passage Publishing for the Passage Prize. Go look for the stories and the collections. They are printed out in books, the winners yeah. among the competition. And you can be part of supporting this kind of talent and enjoying it and benefiting by it. Yeah, so and we got to um... come together. We got Unqualified Reservations, print edition for sale right now. We got a book coming out from Steve Saylor in the near future that's going to be for sale, as well as Passage Price, too. So, yeah, head on over to uh, Passage Press and buy some books. Yep, exactly. So you can be part of these things. I just interviewed Steve recently. Daring Man should be a model to more people. He's the Batman of the internet, the non-world. Yes, yes. call on him for help. Let there be more like him. And we uh, love Steve. You're the guy who helps out with that. So thanks yeah. for all the work, Lomez. All right, T2, take care, man. All the best.